Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, Sunridge. Thank you, April. She's not just a life group leader, she's my daughter. (laughs) Don't hold that against her, though. Hey, if you're joining us online or you're here uh, in our building, aren't you grateful you don't have COVID right now? Amen. Yeah, man, oh man, it's nuts out there. So before I get started, I want to ask each of you uh, to make sure that you take our survey. If you get our email, if you even look at your note sheet, there's a, a QR code. It's really important for us to, to us that you give us your feedback. What you may not know is that Sunridge operates on the basis, uh, you know, we plan on the basis of a strategic plan, and we, we plan five years out. And uh, we, we focus on where we want to advance ministry, the kind of staffing it will take in order to do that, campus, you know, what are we going to do here, and then we have financial goals as well. So those kind of the categories, and of course, the last couple of years have really changed things. So we're kind of starting over. And we really, at, at the very beginning, when I came here, we had a survey that we worked from, and so we need your feedback, your input, to help us create that plan, to take Sunridge where, you know, we believe that God is taking us. So how many of you will promise me right here that you will do that survey? Let's see your hands. Okay, and how many of you say, I'm just not going to do it, Britt? So, yeah, you're fired. Anyway, if you're 16 or older, we really, really want your feedback. And it's important that you realize that just because your husband or your wife took it, or your mom or your dad, that's not good enough. We need everybody's input, okay? So I know that you're one flesh. Uh, This is not something that you can just delegate, even if you're a couple. Please, please do it, okay? Thank you. Thanks a lot, you guys. That's really going to help us be better at our mission of helping people find and follow Jesus. Uh, You know, most of us are uh, somewhat resistant to change. Even even change junkies uh, sometimes are uncomfortable with change for for some sometimes it's like um uh the uncertainty of change you know the devil you know is better than the devil that you don't and sometimes it's about control for us we fear losing control and um we're not exactly sure where we fit in with that future change sometimes it's a question of competency there change is coming and we wonder can do i really have the skill pack to make that change um how many of you had to like go from paper recording to like computer and tablet recording? In my career, I had to do that. And a lot of us struggled with it. Uh, for some of us, change, we're concerned about workload. What does this change mean for me in my place of work? Or is it going to increase what I have to do? Is it going to make my job harder? And sometimes it's just the, the whole idea of slippery slope. Like, if, if this changed, then does it mean all these other changes? 
and, you know, what ifs, all the what ifs that come in. in. In the end, for most of us, change can feel like a threat um, to our comfort, to our security, and to our place in the world. Just think about the last change that was made in your life that you didn't make and how it felt. You know, it's like for most of us, it feels uncomfortable. And so knowing that about human beings, it should come as no surprise that when Jesus began changing the religious world in the first century, uh, many people who were already committed to the religion and devout, or even those that had no religion, uh, that change was uncomfortable to them. And I think that we can learn from that. And so we're in this study as a church where we're reading through Luke. And we're taking sections each week. And I, I really hope that you're following along with us. Because the idea here is from Christmas to Easter, we are following Jesus 2,000 years later and looking at his life. And trying to rediscover some things that maybe we haven't seen before, and hopefully reinforcing some things that we already believe about him. And in Luke's gospel here, where we are today in the section we looked at, we're in the early days of Jesus's ministry. And he's in kind of like the northern region of Palestine in Galilee, where this is, this is kind of like his hometown region. That's where he starts. And wherever he goes, he is preceded by somebody. Somebody else goes there before him, John the Baptist. And it's interesting that the main message that John, Baptist, John the Baptist has is that people need to change. He, everywhere he goes, he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And repent means to change. And then Jesus, even as he started his ministry, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, and we've looked at this several times now. He says, I have come to proclaim the good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, and set the oppressed free, which was a big change from what they thought of, what they, what they thought the Messiah would be. And for some, it was a welcome change. And if you know, you've been a Christian for a while, you know that others, for others, it wasn't so much of a welcome change. And what we see, just like in the nature of who Jesus is, he's already changing things. He's, he's unconventional as a first century rabbi. By last week, we looked at who he invites to follow him. A few fishermen, Simon and his brother, Andrew, and James and John. And then in the section we read this week, he invites a man named Levi, also known as Matthew, who is a tax collector. So he's like this cynical, he has, he's, he's Jewish by birth, but he's, he's in uh, partnership with the Romans, and he's exacting taxes from his people. And nobody loves a tax man, right? And all this is super disturbing to people who are religiously devout at the time. In fact, Levi... When Jesus invites him he, into his team, he throws a party for his other tax collector f 
friends. And uh, Jesus goes to the dinner party. And even that upsets the religious leaders of the day. It's like, how, how can he do that? This man is a traitor to our people. And here Jesus is hanging out with them. So like after just reading that one passage that we had as part of our reading this week, isn't it true you can never say about someone that person could never become a Christian? Because Matthew, the worst cynic of the day, he becomes a Jesus follower. Jesus is unconventional, even like as he expands his team in the 12 that he chooses, and we read that this week as well. It's a totally unconventional team to start a religion, so to speak, a renewal movement in that religion. There's not a religious scholar among them. There's no influential political leaders. There's no power brokers. It's a few fishermen, an apprehensive doubter or two, and at least one zealot who would in modern terms, he would be like a terrorist. And we know that he had one crook with him, one thief named Jesus. So sandwiched in between all of these unconventional choices for his disciples, um, we see Jesus' unconventional perspective about some of the valued Jewish traditions of his day. He has an unorthodox approach to the orthodox traditions of the first century Jewish religion, namely in three categories, fasting, prayer, and Sabbath. And these are three precious observances to the religiously devout in that day, and they are traditions. So traditions by nature don't change, right? But Jesus and his disciples, they don't fast and pray according to the Jewish tradition in the first century. In Luke 5.33, we read it. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. And we've looked at this uh, a number of times as we've gone through other passages in the New Testament, that, this, that the way of doing prayers and fasting was very traditional, and it was set, and they, they, they set aside certain days for uh, fasting and prayers. And the important part in observing this was that, that you did it exactly the way that you were supposed to do it. Now we know that Jesus and his disciples, they fasted and they prayed, but they didn't do it according to the tradition. And this really bugs the Pharisees and the teachers. So, so they, they confront him about this. And, and Jesus not only explains why he doesn't fast according to their tradition, but he even goes into, he goes into depth on this. And he gives them three examples from their everyday life about how things change and how you can't take an old thing and put it with a new thing. The first um, illustration was a wedding. We just, we read it. And he said, you know, when, when a wedding happens, it's a great celebration. And when we have the bridegroom with us, like it's not a time for mourning or fasting. This is a time of celebration. A time will come when it's appropriate to mourn the loss of him. 
But today is a day of celebration. The second illustration he uses is about sowing. I know this is going to be foreign to you, but I've learned a lot about sewing over the years. Like, you can't take an old garment and patch it with a new piece of cloth because then when you wash it, they shrink differently, right? You guys into this? This is really fascinating stuff about sewing. But this is like the everyday life. They're, they're experiencing this. So Jesus is making a simple but important point. You can't, you can't take this new thing and just stick it on to the old thing. And then the third illustration he used is about wine storage. And you know, that at that time, they didn't, in this region, they don't have a lot of wood. They, they don't make barrels of wine like we do today. They, they put wine in animal skins, sometimes in a goat's bladder, which, you know, you know, you drink wine now, it's like has hints of oak and like, what did they say then? You know, hints of goat bladder, I don't know. But that wine was stored in animal skin. So, but when you did that, you know, it ferments, right? And so it expands. And there's no way for that to be let off. And so you can't take an already stretched skin and put the new wine in it because when it expands, it's going to burst the wine skin. The point here is that this new era that Jesus brings needs to be placed in new containers. So he's not just reforming Judaism. He's making something entirely new. And how do they feel about these changes? Well, in verse 39, Jesus tells them, he says, no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say the old is better. They say, like, we like the old wine better. I know that some of you just like wine. But... Jesus is telling them, it's like, you, you don't want to change it. And is anybody like, your brain is already going to that scene in The Jerk where Steve Martin says, this wine is old. No? Come on, people. I don't know. The old is better. Has anyone ever said that before? I think most of us have. Um, the old is better isn't just like something that's universal. It's also a common proverb in the first century that is essentially saying, like, we need to stick to our traditions. These are good, and, you know, we don't want to move away from these. The old is always better. The new isn't going to be good. And so what Jesus is bringing out is, if you, if you, if you just insist that only the old wine is good, then you're never going to try the new. Your mind is already made up. But prayers and fasting, at least you know, in the way that Jesus and his disciples do it, that, that's not their only complaint. It's also, they also have a complaint about how they observe Sabbath. And this is just another tradition that Jesus and his disciples seem to break from. And in Luke 6, 1... On this Sabbath, Jesus is going through the grain fields and his disciples begin to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. And some of the Pharisees ask, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, what you should know is the Old Testament law says it's totally lawful for someone to walk through a field and grab kernels of grain and eat them. You weren't allowed to stop and just like chow down. 
You had to keep moving. It was like a way to provide for travelers, to provide for food. But, but this is clashing with um, the first century tradition of Sabbath. And so everything that they're doing in walking through a field of grain and stripping off the kernels and rubbing them in their hands to, to the Pharisees is a violation of Sabbath. See, technically, it's like on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to do any work. Technically, they are guilty of reaping and threshing and winnowing and preparing food on the Sabbath. So the problem here isn't that they're picking the grain. It's the day or the time in which they're doing it. Now, for us today, in 21st century Temecula Valley, this all seems so confusing, doesn't it, that these kind of things would become such a big deal. And what's interesting is that for many uh, devout Jews of the first century, they could see kind of like the irony in it all as well. They, they had an oral law. like a, They had a way of like things that they, that they said and believed that, that at first weren't written down, but they were ways of applying the Old Testament law. It's called the Mishnah. And of the Mishnah, it was all these oral laws that they passed down in different categories. And of the Mishnah, they said this, Scripture is scanty and the rules many. I love that. Jesus responds to their complaint about Sabbath with like a story from their own ancestry and history. He tells them, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and took the consecrated bread and he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And so what Jesus is doing here is taking someone that they revere, that they, that they know this story of how David had done this. And basically kind of flips it on them to point out to them, you, you did not have a problem with that. And this is someone that you admire and revere, and he violated your eating laws. And so he's, Jesus is bringing out that the intent of Sabbath is, is not to just say you can't eat. Human beings are designed to flourish under God's law, and Sabbath is made for man, not man for Sabbath. Jesus said that in other places. And then Jesus isn't done after explaining about weddings and wine and Sabbath. He says this, the Son of Man is Lord of Sabbath. So he goes one more step beyond this is common sense that he's been advocating for about change and their traditions and some of the gaps and loopholes that are in it. And he's actually establishing his authority here as the Son of God. He is Lord of Sabbath and everything else. And the question that they have to consider in that moment and, of course, throughout the next couple of years of Jesus' ministry, they're constantly confronted with, is Jesus the ultimate authority? It's a question 
that I think that as we read through Luke's gospel, we should all be asking of ourselves, is Jesus Lord of all? Now that's a wrap on just you know the section of scripture we're going to look at, and we've talked about we have five questions that we're considering, and we're saying like, hey, in your life groups, these are your questions. I know you guys might be like tired of hearing them, but I just love saying them. So like, I'm going to put them up on the screen and remind you that as we read through, these are the things that we're asking ourselves. What do you think was important enough about this passage that made it that Luke wanted to write it down? What do we learn about God? What do we learn about people? What does this tell us about the central story of Jesus Christ and his resurrection? And what do we learn about following Jesus? And as usual, I want to tackle one of those questions first. What do we learn about God? from this passage. You know, we are learning that when Jesus came on the scene, a new day dawned. That in in many ways abolished some of the rules and regulations of Judaism. That is true. We're not bringing sacrifices to church anymore. Uh, You're not concerned about dietary restrictions. And I know some of you have golfed on the Sabbath. And we haven't called you out for your great sin yet. But I don't think what we're learning about God here is that he wants to change just a few of our musty old traditions so that we stay current with the, with the modern times. Like, in the end, it's like Jesus isn't saying, do cool stuff, be cool. And I don't think we're learning that in order to be godly, we need to simple, simply make a change every once in a while. It's like, just change something. In other words, the secret to having the Holy Spirit active in your life is to change it, rearrange it. The truth is, some things shouldn't change, right? And I don't think that Luke is telling us that God is merely calling us to be, just, just be unconventional. Be different. You know, like, get some candles and burn them in your church, or Go with goth decor and lower the lights and meet in homes instead of at a church. It's like, it's not just be different. What is the big deal here? Why is is this so important to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and yet Jesus is not complying? What are we learning? What what are we learning about God in all this? And I think that the message that we're getting from this is amplified in Mark's gospel. In Mark 7, 5, it's the same kind of thing. The Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And here's Jesus' reply. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that God desires to capture our hearts. God wants our hearts. He says that you, of these people, saying, in spite of all these things that you do, your hearts are far from me. You're you're very, very religious. You're very devout. You're very disciplined. And you're admired by people who care about these things. He's not abolishing the moral law or Old Testament scriptures, but 
He's saying that something is missing in your practice. They worshiped regularly. They taught scriptures. They said God-honoring things. They were adopting all kinds of religious practices and being very disciplined about it. But in the end, these were becoming their pursuit. A devout Pharisee uh, recited the Shema every day. They were incredibly disciplined. And yet Jesus says of them, your hearts are far from me. And the truth is, human, hu humanity, all of us, we have a tendency towards substituting rituals and traditions and different practices in our, for true worship. We're always going to be inclined to make checklists that prove our orthodoxy. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. I got it. Jesus is Lord of my Sunday morning. Got it. Jesus is Lord of my doctrinal statement. Got it. But is he Lord of our hearts? That's the question. And, I, and that's what Jesus is bringing out. You know, one of the hardest places for me to be truly spiritual was when I was in Bible college. And all we did every day, pretty much all day, was study the Bible, talk about the Bible, debate the Bible, be told what we were going to believe about the Bible. And yet I found that my heart became more zealous about those things than my heart for God. See, if Jesus is Lord of our hearts, the practices and beliefs follow, and the things that need to change will change. But if Jesus is Lord only over our practices, then we'll do a lot of things the right way, the orthodox way, but we could be very far from God. Let me, let me, here's like a crass, it's like, I don't know if all the connections are going to be made here, but like, many of you are parents in this room, and you love your kids, and you literally, if you're like most people, you got no training of how to be a parent. You watched your parents, you noted all their mistakes, vowed that you would not do the same, and then you went ahead and did it, right? But it's like you have very little training. But one thing you have, which most human beings have, an incredible love for our children. And just, just on that basis, you do a reasonably good job, most of you. We know who isn't in children's ministry, and we're keeping a list. You do a reasonably good job of parenting just because your heart is in the right place. And I think our relationship with God is much like that. What do we learn about following Jesus? We learn that our hearts, if that's the thing that matters, then our hearts have to be under constant renewal. You know, you can look perfectly healthy while having heart disease. You, you'll miss the little signs or ignore them and everything will be going fine in your life until one day it isn't. 
And those signs that your heart isn't healthy will usually appear in an activity where you go, whoa, wait a minute. Everything looked fine until then. Exposure to Jesus is a lot like a cardiac test. Have you, let me ask this question, and you know, like maybe I'm being revealing about myself, but like, have you ever found yourself doing all kinds of Christian things, being very Christian about it, and uh, being super active, but inside, you don't feel very Christian? Don't raise your hand. I've heard about somebody that that happened to one time. Thank you, Neil, for getting me. You're the only one, brother. (laughs) Sometimes something will happen that exposes what's going on in our heart. Sometimes out of the ordinary, sometimes just the ordinary thing. And this is why, why David wrote in Psalm 51 this need for renewal. He said, create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit in me. And Paul, in speaking of the same thing, only like in a different, different way, talks about our mind, that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. There's something that is under constant renewal. Sometimes it's just good to just stop where you are and ask yourself this question. What is my religion doing to me? Because it's hard to know if your heart is healthy until it tells you that it isn't. But it was unhealthy the day before. And how do, how do, how do cardiologists tell us whether our heart is healthy or not? They do these tests, right? And then they compare them to what a healthy heart would do. And the question of heart comes down to, for a believer, what does a healthy heart for a Christian look like? It's it's not just about the activities or the things that people see, but like what is deep down inside what's going on in here. And the calling of a Christian, the pure heart, is to be like Jesus to reflect God's image in our world, whether our world is at church or at home or at work or in the community, to reflect God's image to the people around us. And it's really easy to get off track. Like it's, it's, It's easy, just like our physical being, it's like it's easy to focus on the outside, to look real good on the outside. And sometimes we can be so focused on outside matters that we do things that are actually unhealthy for our heart. And, you know, men, this is Southern California. Many of us are into exercise and taking care of ourselves. And I've, I've worked out my entire life, and I know that it doesn't show. But back in the day, I looked really healthy, but I never did cardio. Anybody like that? Some of you never trained leg, legs, and you got that big swole upper body and two little pencils coming out, <laughs> trying to hold all that up. 
and then some of you, like, sometimes you have big muscles and you never train cardio. And I, like, I had friends that worked out, and sometimes we'd play them in uh, racquetball, and then they would just be gassed in five minutes, like, you know, what good's a Cadillac body with a Volkswagen engine in it? That's what I would say to them. Okay, that's a diversion. The point is, God wants our heart. With that in mind, what, what do we learn about ourselves if, if, if God's really trying to capture our hearts? And in order for to, him to have our hearts, it must be under constant renewal and examination in comparison with a healthy heart that is like Jesus. What do we learn about ourselves? What do we learn about people? This is the last main point, is that the devoted heart is so easily substituted by Phariseeism. These are the people that Jesus is talking about. And like heart disease, we can kind of fall into bad habits that ultimately um, are unhealthy for our hearts. And yet you get away with it for so long. You know, bacon, butter, red meat, sugar, Arby's coupons all stuffed in your vehicle. And you, we get away with it, get away with it, but like all the time, our hearts are becoming less and less healthy. And sometimes we don't discover it until so much damage has been done. You know, the Pharisees, they were so devout. And they gave up so much. But they become the arch enemies of Jesus. And so they become kind of the archetype of, like, what could go wrong in religion? No one wants to be a Pharisee. But the truth is, especially if we're devout, we're so easily susceptible to it. Here's some of the things that Jesus said about the Pharisees. They focused on the failure of others. In Luke 6, 2, some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? And that's a theological question. We just kind of addressed it. But did it dawn on you like how much the Pharisees know about Jesus and his disciples? Like, what are they focusing on? And a Pharisee will always ask that question about the failure, your failure, or others' failure, without true concern for that person. It's just more of a, a gotcha. Another thing about Pharisees that Jesus said is they sought human approval over God's. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. They, they wanted human approval. Why? Because it's rewarded. When we do the things that people expect us to do, we receive rewards for that. And Christianity has like a long history of setting markers generationally and culturally and in different times and places that become the thing that you gain approval by 
since, since I do this, then it makes me good with God. And since they don't do that, then they're not good with God. Which easily causes the next thing, which is to put second things first. The Pharisees were known for this. Jesus said, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Isn't that a great line? That is a great line. Why, why do these things matter? These little things matter over the big things? That's the question. And of course, we're all prone to exaggerating the things that we do that, that, that are kind of like natural for us that we're committed to, but minimizing the ones that we don't. This is a big deal. It's kind of like a pet peeve, right? We have our pet peeves. And we elevate those to become the thing that's most important. Pharisees also validated by affiliation. They validated by affiliation. What I mean by that is they defined their alignment by, with God by the group that they belonged to. In Luke 5.33 they said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. And so do you see what they're doing? They're saying, our group and, and his group, we do these things this way, but you don't. And the validation there is in the group that they're associated with. It's, you know, I don't, they're, they're, there's probably... A cultural word for this. I don't know what it is. I call it group comfort. Like we, we find validation in groups of people or categories of people and we say, well, it doesn't matter except it's like I can't really see beyond it because these people are my, my people and, and they agree with me. And so I must be right because it's this group of people. See, the question here isn't whether I can find one group, large or small, that is validating what I do or what I believe. The question is, what is Jesus doing and saying about these things? Which could sometimes be different, right? I mean, group affiliation, validating by affiliation is kind of like when you were a kid and you remember you know, your parents told you you couldn't do something that your friends were going to get to do, and you said, well, Johnny gets to go. And then what did your parents say to you? If Johnny jumped off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff? Anybody heard that? Man, I heard that. And I'm like, yeah, I would, because it'd be cool, and I'd be with my friends. So can now I go? Can I go now? <laughs> if you're a student, don't use that on your parents, please. Pharisees conflated pure faith with cultural preference. Uh, in Mark 7, 8, Jesus says this, you, you have let go of the commands of God and you hold on to human tradition. So there's a letting go and a holding on. Do you see that? And the, the holding on, the allegiance, is to these human or cultural things. And the letting go are of the commands of God. And you wonder, like, how many things 
Is that like for all of us? How is that true of us? In what ways are we holding on to things in the modern church that have nothing to do with God? Now, now I know that we can twist the scriptures to make them fit, but like, isn't it easy? For us, like when you step back to realize that, you know, your Christianity is just loaded up with all this stuff that really has nothing to do with Jesus. It's, it's kind of like your shopping cart at Costco. You know, you go in to get milk. And what do you come out with? A big pile of stuff. I have never spent less than $300 at Costco. And I just went in for a couple of steaks. You know, so like we, we become Christians and like in the cart is Jesus. And then we keep going down the aisles of culture and we just keep filling it up, right? It isn't, it isn't that, we, that the Christian community can't have opinions or that we have strong feelings. We all have those about what we think about college football or politics or you know immigration or the best movie or Yellowstone we all have opinions about Yellowstone right if you don't know what I'm talking about where have you been people <laughs> but are they, are they Christian things that's the question and what's what's happening is we're we're loading it up with things that matter, and they matter to us, and they matter differently to many of us, but we're in really dangerous ground, church, when we, when we make them Christian things, and they're not. And honestly, it's, you know, the last few years have been so confusing to me, personally, as a pastor, to try and, like, in my mind, keep myself focused on Jesus, to keep my family focused on Jesus, and to keep the church that I'm a part of focused on Jesus. Because I think that it's so easy to absorb these things and make them Christian. Can you think of any? Are we letting go of the commands of God in order to hold on to the traditions of men. It's really supposed to be the other way around, right? Let go of these human things and hold on to the things of God. And all this leads them to reject Jesus. All of this puts them in conflict with the Messiah that they have been waiting for. In Luke 16, 14, we see that the Pharisees loved money. And as Jesus taught them, what did they do? They sneered at Jesus, Luke tells us. And when Jesus confronts them about the way that their religion has become corrupt and, and all these things that we've talked about, how do they feel about that? How, how do they respond? Do they say, oh yeah, Jesus, that's my bad. I'm going to change that. Nope. In Luke 6, 11, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious. And they began to discuss what they might do to Jesus. And the question I have is, how 
do devout religious people reject the real Jesus? Because that, has a, that bears a lot on who we are as Christians today. And what I, what I think, and what, what I think I've learned from myself as well, is that it's pretty easy to get there once we conflate our faith with our preferences and we validate our belief by different groups that we're affiliated with, when we start to put second things first, when we seek human approval over God's pure approval, and we focus on the failures of others instead of their flourishing, it's pretty easy to get there. It's pretty easy to become a Pharisee. Now, I'm going to ask the band to come up. And uh, before we get too judgy on the Pharisees, I've been giving giving it to them, right? And hopefully we're all learning something about that. Um. Let's just remember that we are a lot more Pharisee than we realize. You guys with me on that? Yeah. Yeah. So two of us realize this about ourselves. (laughs) That's really good. That's the start. We we just we're human beings. And it's pretty easy to get there. To let our hearts wander from God while being really Christian in like our practices and you want to you want to know how to just like take a quick heart test you want a cardiac examination right now here it is love god love your neighbor there it is like in in the midst of all of my practices all of the things that i do that i give and i you know, I serve, or like I, I wear a Christian t-shirt, or whatever my thing is, I come to church, it's like, do I love God, and do I love my neighbor? That's the ultimate heart test that Jesus keeps giving over and over and over again. Because in the end, that it's, that's what it comes down to. And so, if anything, today is just a heart test for us. Because that's what God wants most from us and if if he has our hearts we will figure the rest out right you know um, and that means that our hearts are constantly under renewal we're constantly standing before God with our hands open and going okay you know I'm, I'm facing that about myself and it really comes down to my heart being connected to God's heart. It's something new that's happening all the time. This is the third Sunday in the month, and we, we take communion as a church uh, every third Sunday. And it's such a great way to, to finish a talk about heart and change and how it has to be under constant renewal. Because remember when Jesus, in, in the Last Supper, when he sat with his disciples, what did he say? about the thing that he was bringing. He said, this is, this is the new covenant. This is a new thing. And isn't it true that God's covenant, even though it doesn't change, it renews in our hearts over and over again. And he gave us this simple, to the modern Christian, maybe a little weird way of remembering what God did for us 
in order that we could have a relationship with him, but it's, all, it's, it's about our hearts connecting with him. And the only way that that could happen is because Jesus' heart was for us. So as we take communion right now together uh, with the band, I want you to get your wafer out. If you didn't get one, you might want to go to the back or wave your hand. While you're doing that, I just want to pray, and then we'll take communion together as a church, and we'll worship. Hey, everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.